Our reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25. It can be found in the Church Bibles on page 1172 and is behind me on the screen. So Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the, to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amazing. Well, why don't we pray for Andy as he comes and speaks to us today. Why don't we stretch out a hand and let's pray for him. Father, thank you so much for Andy. Thank you that as he speaks, this isn't a faith that he just knows in his head, but it's a faith that he lives out that's real to him. Um, Thank you for uh, your presence with him over the last little while and the message that uh, he has for us. And Lord, I just pray we'd have ears to hear, hearts to receive uh, for your kingdom. Amen. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks, Ben. Wow, what a reading. Those of you who have heard me preach before know how I love to sink my teeth into a reading like that, into a passage like that. This time, however, it came with a word of instruction. Just one word, mind. And that one word was joy. One word out of that entire meaty passage. I mean, what's all that about? So here's a question for you. Why is it that anyone who hears the gospel would still choose to reject God? Why is it that anyone who hears the gospel, who hears the good news of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, freely given salvation, would still choose to reject God? I think one of the major contributing factors must surely be that we have convinced the world that to be a Christian is to be an is a, to, is an onerous chore. That to be a Christian is a thankless, joyless task. That to be a Christian is a menial job that we do only to earn ourselves some reward at the future judgments. And I know that no true Christian would ever willingly give that impression, but that is the impression that we have given the world nonetheless. And I think that is because 
We lack joy in a relationship with God. And this must surely be that we, because we do not view God as joyful. We view God as solemn. We view God as eternally serious. We view God... Uh, yeah, perhaps we first met Jesus as a friend. But each time we fail to do his will, each time we are disappointed in ourselves, our view of God transforms that little bit more into that of a grumpy, frustrated headmaster. Perhaps we once knew Jesus intimately, but then life's disappointments happened. Our prayers weren't answered as we wanted. And little by little, God just seems cold, distant, and indifferent. We may call him Father in prayer, but to us he is a father who is locked in his study, too preoccupied to play with his children. But that is not what the Bible says that God is like. Listen to what the pre-incarnate Christ says, the wisdom of God says of himself in Proverbs 8, I was there when he set the heavens in place and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Our God is a God of joy. The triune God has spent eternity rejoicing in each other's presence. And when he created the universe, and when they created mankind, the Trinity delighted and rejoiced in them too. God is not a lonely, bitter giant in the sky. God is a perfect, eternal relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. An eternal relationship overflowing with joy. God gives his unending blessings from and of himself. So when the Bible tells us that he gives us the gift of joy, it is from this pool, from this, from his relationship, from his own eternal perfect relationship, that he draws that joy. The joy of the Son in his Father. The joy of the Father in the Son. The joy of both Father and Son in the Holy Spirit and vice versa. The triune God is an eternal, infinite, and uncontainable fountain of pure, overflowing joy. And until we know this in our heart of hearts, we will never trust him fully. Unless we know this in our heart of hearts, we will never trust him fully, because we will always be worried that he might disappoint us, that the joy might run out. Until we know in our heart of hearts that God is the most joyful being in the entire universe, we will never make him the most precious object of our affection because we will always be wondering if there is a greater joy to be had 
elsewhere. And this is sin. This is the definition of sin that God gives through the eponymous prophet in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own wells, broken wells that cannot hold water. The water here is a metaphor for joy, for ultimate satisfaction. God is saying to us, I am right there in front of you, offering you pure, unending satisfaction, pure, unending joy for your soul. But instead of drinking the water that's right there in front of us, what do we do? We trudge off into into the desert. We put a lot of effort into digging holes in the ground, looking for any scrap of water, any scrap of satisfaction that we can find. And God is appalled at this. Not because we thirst for satisfaction, but in how we seek to slake that thirst. It is not a sin to thirst. It is not a sin to seek satisfaction. It is not a sin wanting joy. The problem is where we seek that joy. It is not a sin to thirst. The sin is that we reject God, we reject that one true fountain... And we seek satisfaction in our own idols, our own little muddy puddles in the ground, our own poor imitations of that one true fountain. Instead of a mouthful of pure satisfaction, we settle for a mouthful of mud. And God is appalled at this. The God of infinite joy is appalled that we value our joy so little. As C.S. Lewis put it, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum, because he cannot understand what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, We are far too easily pleased. We think our own sources of joy, drink, sex, ambition, will satisfy because we have too low an expectation of the satisfaction, of the joy to be found in Christ. We will go to any lengths to find satisfaction anywhere other than in God's. We seek it in relationships, in work, in uh, our hobbies, in holidays, in our children, in doing good deeds, in drink, in drugs, in sex, in porn, whatever it is, but not in Christ. We seek it in anything and everything, but not in Christ. 
And when we do this, it's like digging a broken well. And the problem with broken wells is that they leak. However much satisfaction the well would seem to offer when we first start to dig it, it eventually runs dry. Like the drug addict who needs an ever bigger hit in order to achieve the same high, our wells, any well, eventually ceases to provide the satisfaction it initially offered. And the more they dry out, the more the water disappears, uh, the uh, dirtier the water gets, the more sordid the satisfactions become. As Paul puts it in the reading, initially innocuous-seeming wells become deeper, darker, and dirtier. They become sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, witchcraft, idolatry, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And the more effort we put into digging our wells, and the scarcer and scarcer the water becomes, the more we will do anything to defend that last little bit of remaining water. The more we will attack anyone and anything that threatens our little bit of satisfaction, our little hole in the ground. Um, the emptier and emptier our wells become, the fuller and fuller we become of, as Paul lists, hatred, discourse, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy. The more we dig away at our broken wells, the deeper a pit we find ourselves in. The more we dig away at our broken wells, the deeper a pit we find ourselves in. Until one day, we look up and we found that we have dug ourselves into a pit from which we cannot get out. This was the predicament of the psalmist in Psalm 40, where he says, he was in a slimy pit. He was in the mud. He was in the mire. And his joy, that from the depths of that pit, the Lord hears his cry. That when he was stuck in the muck and the mud and the dirt and the death and decay at the bottom of that pit, the Lord hears his cry. The Lord reaches into the pit and lifts him out. He lifts him out, sets a new song into his mouth and a new joy into his heart. When you are in the depth of a pit... You can only look up, up to the skies, up to the heavens. So let's do the same. Let's look up to the heavens, up to Christ, up to the cross. As in, uh, in the words of Hebrews 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame. If you don't know Christ, then this is a nonsense. What joy could there possibly be in dying on a cross? 
For the atheist, the cross is proof that there is no gods, that the only law is the law of the jungle, that the world is cruel, that life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. For the agnostic, the cross is proof that even if there is a God, he is not Christ and he is not the loving God of the gospel. In their eyes, the gospel of the cross is uh, tantamount to cosmic child abuse, that God is most certainly not joyful, that he is at best uncaring, and at worst, merciless, cruel, and sadistic. But this is not the God that the author of the letter to the Hebrews knew. Christ, the wisdom of God, willingly went to the cross. Why? Because of the joy set before him. He endured the agony. He scorned the shame. Why? Because of the joy set before him. He let himself be ripped from the loving embrace of his eternal heavenly father. Why? Because of the joy set before him. But what joy could Jesus have seen that made even the cross a price worth paying? What did Jesus get out of the cross? He got us. He was already the eternally loved son of his eternal heavenly father. He was maker and owner of the universe. He had everything there was to get already except us. We had stolen ourselves away. We had turned our backs. We had run away. We had squandered his love. But at the cross, he paid our debts. He bought us back. This was the joy set before Jesus. A restored relationship with us. Restored relationship with you, with me, with all of us, was, to Jesus, a joy for which even the cross was not too high a price to pay. Be honest with yourself. If you know God this morning, are you treating him as that distant father locked in his study, too preoccupied to play with his children? Or is he an ever-present father who rejoices in his children? Do you ever consider the joy that Jesus has in you? As an individual, the joy that Jesus has in you. The joy Jesus has whenever any of his lost children return to him. In Luke 15... Jesus tells the parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, where there is rejoicing in heaven, rejoicing in the presence of angels when the lost becomes found. Jesus, God of the universe, creator of all things, king over all creation, rejoices when the lost becomes 
bounds. He is metaphorically happy to jump off his throne, do a disco dance, pop a bottle of champagne, whatever it is he does, to rejoice whenever one of his lost children returns to him. He wouldn't care how many angels think he's dancing like a lunatic out on the dance floor because he is overjoyed when one of his lost children is returned to him. Like the lost son in the parable, we have failed to love our Heavenly Father. Despite his glory and grace and beauty and worth, we have failed to love him. But he has not failed to love us. Despite our joyless, loveless, selfish lives, he has not failed to love us. And the cost of that love was the cross. But for the joy of seeing any of his children return to him, that was a price worth paying. Now, when we understand the cross, it throws into exquisite contrast us and Christ. It shows our unloveliness in the face of Christ's amazing love. It shows our unworthiness in the face of Christ's all-surpassing worth. And I think this can have one of two effects on us. Is Christ's worthiness a relief to us? Or are we burdened by our own sense of unworthiness? What a relief it is to be able to take our eyes off ourselves and fix them on Jesus. What a joy it is to be able to stop, uh, to take our eyes off our own concerns and agendas, to stop digging our own broken wells, and to simply return to the spring of living water. But if the cross is a burden to us, if we are burdened by our own sense of unworthiness, then we are not truly looking to the cross. We are looking to our own self-worth. We have turned our own worth into the well from which we are drinking. And like any well that we build, it leaks. The satisfaction of our own worth will leak away and uh, it will never live up to the satisfaction that it promised. And that is why our own worth is a burden upon us. But the joy of the gospel is that even if you have spent your entire life building your own broken wells, it is never too late to return to Christ. It is never too late to turn to Christ, to drink perhaps for the first time from his spring of living water. If you feel that is you, that you have spent your entire life digging away at broken wells, then could I please urge you to make use of the prayer team who will be over in that corner after the service. So the offer of joy is open to us. The free offer of total satisfaction 
is open to us. How do we respond? In Matthew 13, Jesus tells two mini parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and in his joy, went and sold everything he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away overjoyed, sold everything he had, and bought it. To find Christ is to find a treasure worth more than anything you possess. If you discover in Christ his power and glory and uh, grace and mercy and faithfulness and holiness and love, if you see in him the value of an unquenchable spring of life-giving water, then you will do anything to uh, follow him. You will do what the man in the parable does. You will sell everything you own. You will surrender every possession. You will sacrifice every human relationship in order to gain him. And this is not a demand. This is not some instructional requirement. This is not about sacrifice. What does it say in the parable? You will do it with joy. The men in the parable were free to not buy the pearl. They were free to go away and not buy the field. But in their joy, they sold everything they had um, to get that treasure. This is the joy that Saul discovered on the road to Damascus when he met Christ. The joy for which he considered everything else lost compared to the unsurpassable worth of Jesus, of knowing Christ. Saul changed his name to Paul. He turned his back on his former life. He gave up his lucrative career as persecutor to become the persecuted. He turned his back on every person that he had ever known, and they turned their back on him, his family, his friends. He was rejected by all of them, all because of the all-surpassing worth, the all-surpassing joy of knowing Christ. Joy does not mean that we have to be bubbly all the time. Joy does not mean a lack of pain. Joy does not mean the absence of mourning or sadness. Being a Christian means facing up to the hard topics. It means looking at suffering, looking at death, not ignoring them, not insulating ourselves from them, not living our lives, pretending our very best that these things don't exist. Christian joy does not mean glossing over the hard topics. It does not mean that we should go away with glib answers to deep questions. It does not mean going away saying that because our eternal future is secure, that everything is lovely now. It's not. We live in a fallen world. We live in a deeply broken world. To say otherwise 
is just simply absurd. Just look around you. We are not talking about happiness this morning. Chocolate will make you happy. We are talking about the kind of joy that endures when you lose your spouse, when you lose a child, when your national and cultural identity is stolen from you, when you find yourself a foreigner in your own home, when you lose your job security, when you lose your house, when you lose your income, when you lose your health, or all of the above at the same time. Joy is a deep contentment. It is satisfaction. It is inner delight. It is inner peace. It is inner rest. When your inner turmoil stop and your yearnings cease. Although you have never truly known it, although you have no way to actually know it, it is the world as the world was meant to be. It is life as life should be. Books and art and music and beauty and laughter and friendship all hint at it, but they are not the thing itself. Joy is the ecstasy of a soul being nourished by the food that it was created to rely on, but which it has never truly tasted. The ecstasy of a soul being nourished by the one who created it. The embrace of a lover hints at it, but it is not the thing itself. Joy is the peace of a soul being embraced by the one who created it, who knows it intimately, who knows it perfectly, and yet who loves it absolutely and unconditionally. This is the joy that the Spirit gives. This is the joy of the men in the parable, the pearl of great worth, the treasure for which it was worth giving up everything. This is the joy of Paul, the all-surpassing worth of Christ, for which he considered all other things lost. And this is a joy for now. This is not a promise of some abstract future joy. This is a joy for now. Yes, partly because we know that our eternal future is secure, but more than that, because we are living as we were designed to live. We are in relationship with the God that we were designed to be in relationship with, in step with the God that we were designed to walk alongside. Forgetting our broken wells, simply turning and drinking from the fountain of living water. This is a joy for now, rejoicing in the God who rejoices in us. A God for whom the joy of knowing us um, suffered death, even death on a cross. So let us drink. Drink from the fountain of living water. Let us rejoice daily 
in the, um, sorry, let us return daily to the fountain of living water. Let's intoxicate ourselves on the worth and the wonder of Christ. We'll never give up digging our own wells unless we daily refresh ourselves from the one to true spring. Let us rejoice daily in the God of pure, eternal, overflowing joy, who is appalled when we settle for so so little. Let us revel in the Trinity that would rip itself apart in order to pay the cost of our return. This is our joy as Christians. So let us experience it daily. Let us live it daily. Let's not make following Christ our chore, but our joy. And through that, let us pray that the rest of the world would see the worth and the wonder and the joy that is Christ Jesus. Amen? Invite the worship teams to come up. Why don't we stand and let's just have a a moment to invite God's spirit afresh. Think about how we might respond to what Andy shared this morning.